Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, um, right, so we'll continue our uh, discussion of early sort of theoretical ideas about how we'll be conditioning and how it works. Um, whoops, go back, what am I doing? This is where we work, which is this notion that was early on, and this was Pavlov said it was stimulus substitution that the US replaced the CS. So in other words, we get a response. Normally we get a response. Okay? And normally that's the unconditioned stimulus leads to an unconditioned response. Okay? So that's meat powder saliva. Good. Now, Pavlov said that this is going to be replaced by the CS. So now the CS, he's saying, is now leading to the response. Stimulus response connections always. So he's not saying this goes away, but he's saying this <coughs> replaces the potential now leading to the connection between a conditioned stimulus and an unconditioned response. Well, and a conditioned response. But let's just say a response. Okay? Now, you would then expect that the CR would always be the same as the UR if that were true. And in fact, the CR is not always the same as the UR. So that makes you think that as intuitively pleasing as the idea of stimulus substitution is, it's probably not true. But we get the idea of sidetracking, and you know, maybe you behave towards the object, the stimulus, the CS, the way you would move towards the US. And maybe it kind of fits back together. So it's a weak idea because you've got to go, yeah, but then sometimes this. And any kind of theory says, yeah, but then sometimes this, it's a weak theory. Right? It's just one of those things. If, if, if I've got to qualify all the time, if I've got to say, except on Thursday, <coughs> it becomes a weak theory. It's very intuitively pleasing. I think if you ask most people that didn't know anything about Pavlovian conditioning, they would tell you that that's probably how it worked. Well, we can maybe look at physiology. Now, Pavlov, as I mentioned the other day, actually thought there were CS and US centers in the brain. Here's your, here's your Q zone with very goodness. Oh, Dr. Gear Adam, the Simpsons? No? Anyway? Okay. Are there centers in the brain that represent things? Well, it's not quite that simple. Those of you that take a brain behavior know it's not even remotely that simple. But there are centers for, there's a vomit center, a cough center. I mean, there really are reflex centers in the brain. Um, for example, uh, take, when you take heroin, it actually, there are receptors there for, for, uh, in, the, in the cough center. And it turns off coughing. That's why you can give, you know, <coughs> cough medicine is, is wonderful, because it actually stops you from coughing. Right? Okay. <coughs> so there are centers in the brain, but are, would there be a center for every kind of CS, every kind of US? This seems exceedingly unlikely. Right? So there don't seem to be these things. Some responses are certainly hooked up to certain brain regions. So I mean, if you want to give Pavlov some credit, and again, you've got to understand that Pavlov is doing this in the very earliest days of understanding anything about the nervous system. You know, he's doing this, some of this work, and some of these guys like, you know, Hodgkin and Huxley are still alive. Sherrington is still alive. Like, they just discovered synapses. Okay? So, if it's that early on, 
you got to give him some credit, you know. And that's actually a very intuitively pleasing idea. Again, he just happened to be wrong. The question remains, though: Is it a stimulus-stimulus connection or a stimulus-response connection? And this is one of those questions that you probably may have. I don't know how detailed they get in learning in the intro books. Uh, that Lori probably covers it really well because that's a lot of her background. Um, the only person on our carpet that has never worked with animals is uh, Paul. So he's an outcast. Blaine works with people now, but his, his honors thesis and his master's were on animals. Gerald was, me, Lori, yeah, Paul, we just don't really think of him as, as a scientist. <laughs> it's a joke. It really is a joke. I can't because I love it. So probably if any of us, except Paul, he would probably tell you that, well, the eyewitnesses looked at the birds. But I think all of us will cover it, you know, say, it's a stimulus, 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 response, good question. And until, in fact, I ran into an experiment I'm going to talk about today in great detail, um, this was always an open question. I was always really sympathetic to the SS connection. It seems to me to be more representational somehow. And I, uh, my major field in my PhD was comparative cognition, and my minor was animal cognition and human cognition. And those are my two minors. It's not like my minor was French. It doesn't work out. That's cool. So I mean, I'm pretty cognitive. I would call myself a cognitive psychologist, and that sort of just resonates with me as far as forming a representation, stimuli coming together. This looks like it's a reflex. And of course, that's what Pavlov's book is called. There's nothing wrong with reflexes. Everybody should have some. How would you get at that, though, experimentally? Well, you, if there were CSUS centers, that'd be great. We could put rats in an MRI of people and condition them and watch their arms. So the question then becomes representationally, how is this going to work? So we have a CSUS. We know there's a connection between the U.S. and the response, just like I've drawn up here. We know that's true. There must be. When you put meat powder in a dog's mouth, it salivates. That's just how the world works. So that's a nice solid line. The question, though, is, is the connection CS to U.S., or is the connection CS to response? This is what Pavlov says. And this is what you would call an SR psychologist would say. It's a stimulus-response connection. It's a reflex. So it's just a reflex, right? I find it hard to believe that anything that is also the name of Duran Duran song could be theoretically viable. That was really just for me, so I can tell Paul that there. It was but it's a tenable position. This is weird. This actually, I mean, I said this is my night, but that seems more complicated. Nervous systems don't tend to be complicated. They tend to be like most biological systems, as simple as freaking possible. The question is, how are you going to get at this? Well, if we had, if we were, we could use a brain, and there were centers. Oh, right, there aren't. So we can't do wet physiology. We can't end in there knock something out, 
Because if we could not get a connection, right? If we could just get rid of this US-UR bond after conditioning and then give the CS, because if that went away, like that, see that? You got it's gone. If only science were that easy. If we could make that go away, if I could do what I just did there, and then we just gave the animal CS, and we got no response, it must be an SR connection. Right? If we gave the animal the CS, and we get a response, right, it must be an SR connection. If we don't get one, it must be an SS connection. Do you see the logic of this? Now, this sounds kind of mythical, but if we could, through the magic of science, you get the joke of the magic of science. It's not magic, it's science. Right? <laughs> Dr. Bonner, or Dr. Bonner told me she was teaching a course in magical realism. I don't know anything about English. Okay, so I love to make fun of English. Well, I am. And I said, how do you get magical realism? Real is it magic? And she explained it to me, and I, I probably wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I don't know, awesome. What if we could do that? That would be great. <clears throat> but we don't have centers. We get centers, we just go, oh, it's connected here. Lesion. Trivial. We have to do this behaviorally. <laughs> this doesn't sound very easy, does it? I'm building up to an awesome experiment. Okay, but you see what would happen. You, does everybody here understand? This is really important for you to get, okay? I don't care if you spend two days on this. Because it's one of my favorite all-time experiments. It's up there with wands and bats. I love this. If we could remove that, and then we just give this after conditioning, the CSUS pairing, if we then get a response, it must be an SR connection. If we get no response, it's an SS connection. Because there's no other possible connections. Okay? Make sense? Okay, here we go. Bob Scorla figured out how to do this in 1973, which amazes me because people still think this, think this is a controversy. Strikes me when someone does the key experiment and the controversy is over. This is a very smart man. Uh, he was in a class of a whole lot of smart people. They were all going to graduate school at the same time, in the same school. They were all going to the University of Pennsylvania, or Penn, not Penn State, but Penn. Um, they were all being taught a graduate seminar by a guy named Henry Gleitman, who worked with Tolman. Uh, Gleitman's pretty important in history of psychology. Uh, it was Barbara Scorla, it was Sarah Shellworth, it was Peter Holland. These are all names you're going to hear. They were all going to the same freaking school. And actually, one of our old colleagues here that none of you guys know anymore, but Tom Alloy, who used to be in our department here, they all went to school together. And it's just bizarre. Because it's like this. Those seminars must have just been incredible. Because you had people, and again, remember the names Rescorla, Holland, Shuttleworth, Wagner. You'll hear these names, and you're going to say, All those people were together? Pretty cool. So Bob did this really neat experiment. He tried to figure out how to get rid of a response to this hardwired to a stimulus without using a knife. 
and give it back. Okay, if you're using CER, this is why I spent so much time on CER the other day. If you're using CER, condition suppression, the response you're interested in is startle, isn't it? Because the shock startles the animal. The light then that stops the animal from responding startles the rat and it stops responding. We could use a light, we could use a tone. They bought these tone. If your response is startled, how do you get rid of a startle response? Well, we talked about that. Habituation. We, we can actually do this experimentally. We can remove a startle response. It's actually easy. It's trivially easy. You just give the animal a whole lot of presentations. So what he's going to do is a two-stage experiment here. He's going to train, up, train them up in CER, and then look at their, again, equal responding, okay? Again, equal responding, and he's going to do the, it's going to be a noise. It'll be the, the signal for the shock, right? And then he'll habituate one group to the noise, and the other group, he won't habituate. Bob's a very smart man. He's also a really good guy. And the nice thing about it, you'll find this if you go on in any, any, well, any, almost any career, I think. But I found at least in, in what I did, the really good people are totally humble and cool. <coughs> it's the fair of Italy people that are the assholes. <laughs> uh, he's great. He's great. Uh, first time I met him, I was, I was giving a poster at a conference in Los Angeles, and I was standing there, and it was really hot because it's Los Angeles. And I said to my friend John Christmas, John, could you I could have stand by, you gotta stand by closer? Just wait for people to come by and ask questions. Think about the size of your standard. Like an idiot. And my friend John came by and I said, John, can you go get me a beer? Because there's always beer at these things. And here, here's five bucks, go get me a beer or two, because I'm really thirsty. So he comes back and he brings me like a corona. And I looked at him like, Corona? So I took the thing, it was good, because it was light. So I just, I, I'm sucking back this whole beer. And this guy comes up, he's about to ask me some questions. And I go, yeah, he's sat. Pamela Beard, I look at him. And I, of course, I don't see very well. I see, his, I see who he is, and I, I think I know who that is. I see his name tag. He says, Robert with a squirrel. And I went, oh, hey, Bob. I burped. <laughs> and he asked questions, and I answered him, and it was actually quite nice. Um, he's, a, he's a really, really nice guy. But he's also super clever. This is, this is so cool, this experiment. Here's the design. Okay. This is what you call a simple bug response experiment. Very often, I've seen experiments in his, he writes up, there's like nine control groups. He's a damn scientist. Okay. What's he going to use instead of a shock? Well, he's going to use a loud noise. So he's going to do conditional emotional response or conditional suppression. But there's going to be a light that's going to signal a loud noise. The light is not signaling a shock like it normally does. Because you cannot habituate the response to a shock. It's not like, oh, I'm finally used to these shocks. It's not going to bother me anymore. Okay? You have to use something, a loud noise, the animal's going to get afraid of it. But if it, you can simply habituate it. So we got one, then we, first of all, both groups are trained up on bar pressing. Both groups are trained up on bar pressing. So that, st that starts before anything happens. We get some rats, they're both trained to press a bar. 
So, in the, so let's look at the control group first because it's the standard experiment. The control group, they get light, light leads to noise. <coughs> okay? And so does both. So does the visualization. Both groups get light leads to noise. This is happening again, by the way, while they're bar pressing. Remember, we're then going to look at the ratio of responses during the light is the testing um, versus uh, the ratio of responses during the light to responses when there was no light on. And we're going to see if the, if the responding drops off. Okay? So there's phase one, both groups the same. Phase two, the habituation group just gets a whole bunch of trials with noise. No light signaling, just noise. This is taking the place, again, of the shock you usually use in CDR. And again, we can't, we have to habituate the animal. You cannot habituate the animal to a shock. It's just not going to work. The rat's not going to say, oh, I'm kind of used to getting shocked in my feet now. Right? But it can get used to, in the habituation sense, not really getting used to, the noise. Then we're going to test the two groups. Here we do nothing because we're going to use a standard CER experiment. Here we're going to test with light. Test with light. We're going to see how much responding there is when the light's on. Again, remember, because this is CER, the less responding there is, the more learning there is. Because the animal is being signaled that the light leads to noise, so it stops responding. It, in fact, is getting startled. <coughs> okay, this is not horribly easy to get. Does everybody understand this? If you don't, I will explain it again. So, if you have yeah, then, 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 So, if you have less responding, you're learning more. Yes. You're learning to not respond. Your what you've learned is that lights predict something that you don't like, and it, it startles you and you stop responding. Okay? Yeah. Uh, same, same thing? Okay. Sorry. No, no worries. Maybe so what's happening here then, again, remember, and we can take it, the nice thing is we have different rats. We take a ratio of responding during light to responding not during light. We get what's called the suppression ratio. And the closer that is to zero, the more learning there is. So we can quantify this. Yeah, please. So the noise, I just want to clarify, the noise is going on when they're bar pressing. Well, yeah, it's randomly. In this room? Yes. Yeah, yeah. so they're pressing the bar, just <laughs> in the first phase. Even before the first phase, they're pressing the bar, having a great time. Then, oh, no, sorry, not here. This, they're actually being taken this, in this phase here. Huh. They're not bar pressing. They're just being given, they're just being given a whole lot of loud noises to habituate to it being startled by noise. But in the first phase, they're this, pressing this the bar. This is the bar press. Yeah. And then they get the noise and they're startled. And then in phase two, they just get adapted to the noise, right? Or individually. Yeah. And then the test phase, that's when they actually put the light on and then yeah, they're bar pressing. Well, they're, they're bar pressing, yes. Yeah. Okay. So two groups, again, a bottom of scroll experiment with two groups is rare. I remember a conference someone making a joke about this. <coughs> they were 
doing in class of the experiment, they said, they, they showed their, their design, they said, and of course, I had the bumper score level of experiment. Of, the next slide is like 15 controllers. So you're very careful. Yeah. You expect then that yes. the control. Yes. If, if it was a sleeper, it was an SS type of connection. Yes. The, well, the control should still show a lower responding because they're running. Yes. But if it was an SS connection and an habituation group, you would see would it be if it was no different responding. Okay, remember this. Yeah. This is now going. Right? The CS is the light, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is gone. Noise. Uh, no. Yeah, noise, start. And we're measuring startle by looking at suppression ratio. So if you see it down to the same suppression ratio as the control yeah. in the habituation group, then you can say it's a TSI connection, right? Yes. Huh. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you guys get this? I hope that you write that up on the board there help too. Because now you see what these things are. This is this is exceedingly clever. There was less suppression than habituation. So in other words, there was more responding, which means therefore the connection must be stimulus stimulus. So what happened was there's less suppression, meaning more responding, in the habituation group. In other words, the group that looked like this, there isn't as much responding, as much learning. If that's the case, the connection has to be SS. What else could it be? This is exceedingly clever. This, this should impress you that someone can come up with something gets clever. I love experiments like that. This makes me say laugh. Oops. All right. But I want, before we continue on here, I want to make sure that I'm pushing the wrong button. <laughs> Does everybody understand this? Do you have any questions? I really want to, because this is really important. This makes a great test question. Does that help? It really does, because it's an important experiment. It's not nearly, it's not thought about nearly enough. I'll say that. Yes, please. Um, okay, so the habituation group learned more or less than? The habituation group, that's this, right? That's what we have here. If, because the CS, the, the noise to, to startle is gone. The connection itself, they both learned that light needs the noise. Remember that, they both learned that light needs the noise. But, this is that learning performance thing. The habituation group can't show it anymore. Because we've taken out the connection between noise and startle. We've removed it. We've taught this to them and then removed the way that they can respond. So I would venture to say that they both learned the same thing. I mean, more accurately, they both learned the same thing, but that they can't respond because the connection's gone. Because the connection that they've learned 
is that light leads to noise. They have not learned that light leads to startle. Because if they learned that light leads to startle, they'd still show suppression. So while I think I said this less, because we're learning, the less learning, it's probably more accurate to say they can't show you what they've learned anymore. Because we've removed the connection. If we could ask them, which, we, well, this is the only way we can ask them. If we could ask them to tell me about lights, they'd say they lead to noise. But the only way they can show us this is by being startled by lights, and they don't get startled by lights. They only get startled by noises. We've uh, disconnected noises and startled. I shouldn't say we. Bob has. Give him all the credit there. We had nothing to do with this. Oh, let's take credit for it. Let's say we don't But what about the startle? They still startle. No, that's the thing. They're not anymore. You habituate. That's the beauty of it. Because if you use loud noise as the way to suppress, we can get loud noises as the classic stimulus for, for habituation experiments. That's the one that you use if you're using anything other than an amnesia or a nematode. If you're using something that's like a little more complicated animal, like a rat, you almost always use a loud noise. I use a startle reflex or an oriented reflex. And you can measure startle. And the beautiful thing about, about CDR is you can measure it by, you get a, a nice number, the whole thing. So they may actually still know this. We can't get really quite inside their heads. I, as I said, I would venture to say they still know that lights lead to noise. They just can't show you anymore. Right? And I think probably most people would say I'm over-interpreting it. This is really clever. Like, this is blow-away science. And this was, I was eight years old, I didn't know this was I was just playing with toys. I didn't care. It's never got on the news. If this was now, this wouldn't be in Science Daily. Nobody putting this on Google Plus and Facebook. And we get all excited about this, but this is really awesome science. Okay. Questions? Again, you okay? You got it? It's funny, by the way, this half of the room is the Mac half, and this half is the PC half. It's interesting, I don't know how that happened. There's maybe one PC here, well, one Mac here, a PC here, it's sort of the border region here, it's a demilitarized zone. <laughs> Very strange. You know what I mean? It's almost like it's an ad for Apple. <laughs> I think it's very odd, but it's just interesting. All right, here's some properties of that will be conditioned. Okay. And you're going to hear me use these terms in other kinds of conditioning, other kinds of learning. Um, we talked about, I think, or I can then apply these to, to, to habituation as well. But, um, the first phase is acquisition. This is when the animal is doing the learning. Right? This is when it's actually uh, getting the connection between the CS and the US. Yes, that's right. I said it. It's an SS connection. I've got data behind me. Possible SS connection line. Yeah, it's, a, it's an SS connection. I know it is. Don't worry about it anymore. I know it's an SS connection. Damn it. So the animal's learning the connection between the two stimuli, the unconditioned stimulus and the conditioned stimulus, we call that acquisition. It's acquiring the association. How do we know we're in acquisition? If we look at a graph, let's say we're doing. Um, Salivary conditioning, because it's really 
It's nice to quantify. Well, it's not nice to quantify because it's milliliters of saliva. But it's quantifiable easily. So as we go along, we get more and more learning. We're sort of less and less learning. And it starts to asymptote. So this is trial by trial. We get more and more responding, but we, we get more responding at the beginning. You'll learn the most at the very beginning. Right? Think of any kind of learning even you've done in your life. Just introspect a little bit of any kind of task. You learn the most the very first time you try something. You're not perfect at it yet, but you've got the most to learn, too. Right? So on trial one, you learn more than you do on trial two. <coughs> we make sure asymptote. Right? So we get to a point where you can't learn anything else. Or at least you can't show anything else. You can't spit any more than the physiological limits of the amount you experience life. You can't be any more startled than being really startled to the point where you don't respond anymore. Okay, so that's the asymptote. At this point, we say that learning is, is finished. Right? Now, it may not be. We, we talked about overlearning the situation below zero today. So we talked about overlearning, and it may be the case, in fact, that you're still learning stuff. You're just not. You can't show it anymore because you can't respond any more than completely responding as much as you can. Right? But that's asymptote. And you know, those of you that have taken any math, though, you can actually mathematically define asymptote, no problem. Now, what we can do is we can now take our CS and let's go, we'll use salivary conditioning. So we're going to go with Pavlov's uh, buzzer and meat powder. So here we have acquisition to about here. And then here we have asymptote. And then what we're going to do is we're just going to play the CS by itself. So it's buzzer, 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 no meat powder. And measure the responses. Less. Now think about what happens here. The animal now is learning that the buzzer does not, now this is what Pavlov said, but the animal is now learning that the buzzer predicts nothing. Predicts no meat powder. Sorry, predicts no meat powder. Doesn't predict nothing, it predicts no meat powder. So the animal starts to go down. Zero. That's called extinction. Okay? Next day, and we, we do this to a point where the animal down goes down to zero. And you notice how I tried to draw it that way, it doesn't quite look like that, but this should almost be able to be flipped over and be that. It's like it's a mirror image. Because with the animal's just learning something else now. Okay? So this should, if, if I did this properly, which I don't think I did, the acquisition curve is flipped over and attached here and put there. It doesn't quite look like that. On my drawing, it should. Theoretically, it should. It probably looks a little more like that in reality. Okay. The next day, we bring the animal back in to the experiment. We play the buzzer. And what this says we should actually get a response, doesn't it? Or shouldn't get a response at all. Because we've taught it now that, well, it's responding, it doesn't salivate anymore. But the next day, we'll get, it won't start at zero. It'll start like here. We get what's called spontaneous recovery. The animal will quickly learn to get back with the asymptote. In fact, it will learn much more quickly. So we get spontaneous recovery.
So, by the way, I've never in my life heard of what I think is a satisfying explanation of why spontaneous recovery happens. I just don't understand it. No, but I don't think it does. Um, I can give you an biological reason why I think it happens. Like a nice functional reason, that's great. But I can't give you a mechanistic reason. I just can't think of one, of why the mechanism does this. On the mechanistic level, I, as I said, I can, I can give you a completely good functional reason. You know, that was sure. But I don't know how the mechanism works for you. And I don't think it might be a process, I've heard this said, of disinhibition, such that this, what we've done here is we've taught the animal that it predicts nothing. We've taught it inhibition. Not predicts nothing, it predicts a lack of meat powder. It may be that coming in the next day, that that inhibition of responding is being inhibited. And when we inhibit inhibition, we get disinhibition. In other words, we get excitation. Yeah. So it might be disinhibition. Um, I'm trying to figure out the most trying to figure out what the disinhibitor is. What's stopping the inhibition? Is it now? It could be the experimental paradigm. I'm getting black in the box, getting set up, because that always happens at the very beginning of the experiment. I don't know. Could be. You get rapid reacquisition, as I've shown here. environments, and once they deplete the food, it's gone. You can't get any more food. The next day, you come back, the, the food is, 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 is uh, replenished itself. Let's, you can think of all kinds of food that works like this. Um, you know, flowers that have nectar in them, they replenish. Uh, it may be that, you know, you can find a place where a bunch of uh, your dogs, if you're a carnivore, you find a, bunch of, a place where a bunch of animals live, and they sort of travel through that every day and they've eaten them all, or they've traveled all through, now they're gone, but they're going to come back the next day because there's only eat all of them. I, I, get, I get it totally from the functional. I just don't understand mechanistically where it happens. So it's like, you know, everything you know is wrong, everything you know is wrong. And the animal's like, okay, everything I know is wrong. And the next day they say, I'm just kidding. Oh, good. I'm with you. Now, inhibition is an interesting phenomenon because we can actually train an animal that one stimulus predicts a lack of something. And one stimulus predicts that something. The lack of is the negative. So it's a, it's a location you'll see me use, you'll see me use in the book as well. Um, so we have, two, we have two stimuli here, we get A and B. We get B plus, so B is, gives you a stimulus, and A gives you no stimulus. The thing is, how can we test if something's an inhibitor? 
We can't say it's going to not respond more than not responding. This can't be done. So what we do is we take the two stimuli. So let's say we're doing this with food. We got A is a light, B is a tone. So B, B food, B food, B food. A is no food. So whenever A comes on, there's no food. Whenever B comes on, there's food. But we can't. And then we're going to celebrate conditioning. So we're going to do some dogs that are hooked up to apparatuses. We're collecting their saliva. Pretty simple experiment, but we can't get. If, if this worked, <coughs> A, no food, we should get no salivation, right? And we just play A by itself. But you should also get no salivation when you give it C, and you've never trained in anything about C. Right? So we have light tone, and I don't know what the hell else could be. Picture of some guy. <laughs> I don't know. So we, it's like, how do we know that it's actually a hint tour? Well, there's a way we can find out. The way we find out is we sum the two of them. If we take A and B together, and we make them a compound stimulus of the light and the tone, we should get less responding than we do just to, did I say it was a light or a tone? I think I said it was a tone. We just do tone alone. Tone alone, of course, in Macaulay Culkin film in the early 1990s. It's called Bleed. Structural film he did. <coughs> so we do what's called some summation test. And um, by the way, that would work, like everybody just described. You would get less responding to A and B together than you would be by itself. But you would get no responding to A because the animal can't respond less than not salivating at all. What's it going to do? Take extra saliva from another dog? <laughs> you can't salivate less than not salivating. This is the thing about inhibitory conditioning. You can never, it's hard to measure until you put it up against an excitatory stimulus in a, in a compound. Then you can see, oh, now I see what's going on. And of course, most of the world is compound stimuli. Denny and I were talking before class, and she asked, like, taking this stuff into the real world. And in case, indeed, it's the case. In the real world, out in the wild, first of all, most stimuli are compound stimuli. They're in single modalities. And also, if you're, you're being inundated with a lot of stimuli, not just one and everything else is controlled. So you understand the summation test? Okay. The other one you can do is called the retardation test. And that's you see if A alone, so A, A minus. And then you do training of A, B plus. Compared to no experience with A and training of A, B plus. And you see this, this, this previous experience that A, A minus, A leads to no food. Does that, does, does that retard learning? Does it take longer for them to reach acid? If it does, we have trained A to be inhibited. Condition of Questions about that? You can call it, um, 
these kind of inhibitors are, we can call them internal inhibitors. Pavlov talked about external inhibition, which were stimuli the animal didn't know about, um, and that, that those stimuli would inhibit responding. Okay, so we've trained these, we call these internal inhibitors. External inhibitors are external stimuli that you play to the animal. And I always say play because you say play a tone and uh, play a play a light, like show a light, so you should just say play. Um, so you play a, an external stimulus and you see if it inhibits responding. That's hard, people really have ignored that part of um, Pavlov, which is kind of a shame because it's kind of some neat stuff. An experiment that I ran long ago, which was never written up because I did it in second year, <laughs> so it's not like a lot of people write up their lab reports for second year. But I want to talk about this because I just think it's a neat little experiment that I did. Um, me and two other students, we were like a lab group. You know. So we trained a rat, oh God, a pigeon to peck at a key. This was like I said, back in, back in the days when, of course, like this, everybody got a pigeon, everybody got a rat. Sadly, not anymore. Those days are gone. Sucks. Of course, somebody always lost their rat or their pigeon. I mean, when I say lose, it died. That's not good. It's always somebody who goes, oh, I thought you were feeding the rats. So really, I understand why it's not done anymore. What we did, me and the girl that won that, and another girl who didn't really work too hard in the class. Black group, I can't remember her name. Mostly me and one. Let's give her all the credit. One to Brown. Um, pretty cool experiment, I think. And that's we had a so we had a, a box that looks like this, and we had a pecking key here. Okay, this is overhead. Train the bird to peck at this key. That's easy. Talked about that. There's a, a red light. Red light comes on uh, for I think it was 20 seconds, and then with about two seconds left of the red light, the food hopper opens. The rat learns, or pigeon rather, learns very quickly for some reason to start pecking at the red light. Again, no one really knows why, but we know they do it. It's a way to quantify. It's a cool, easy thing to do. So that wasn't very interesting. The interesting part was we could measure because it's such a long stimulus. Actually, it was 30 seconds. Yeah, it was 30 seconds. We cut this in half, and we just watched when they spent, the, 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 the pigeon spent its time. Okay? So over time, so this is each trial, we've got 30 seconds here. Where do they spend their time? In the first 30 seconds, they actually spend their time away from the, from the stimulus. You know why? The first, the first 15 seconds of the 30 second light, that's ages to a pigeon. Right? But the 30 second stimulus is long. So the pigeon would spend all this time at the other end of the box. Because the first 15 seconds of the 30 seconds were actually inhibitory. It's like, I know there's not going to be any food for a while. So the pigeon would spend all this time over here. About 15 seconds in, well, we, the operation just cut it in half. So 15 seconds in, we measure it. They spend all their time here, close to here, and they start pecking. Because we used to long stimulus, we have an inhibitory phase of our CS and an excitatory phase of our CS. So we measured where do they spend their time. We didn't actually measure pack, well, we did measure packing um, in the first 15 and the last 15, but that was really hard to do. We had the data, but it was writing stuff down, which was really high-end science we were doing. So we actually just counted with a stopwatch how much time we spent here and here. But if we had measured pecking, I can guarantee you, in the first 15 seconds, we get hardly any, and then we get a whole bunch 
in the second 15 seconds. Okay? So the first 15 seconds has now become inhibitory, and the second 15 seconds has become excitatory. And again, it makes sense. Indeed, when you use a long stimulus like this even longer, you will get to the point where the pigeon, they will actually look away from the stimulus because it's so, it's so, oh, we have to morphize a bit. It's like, oh no, that means it's gonna be a long time until I get fed. I don't even know about it. I've seen pigeons with these really long stimuli actually cover their heads with their wing. It's, it's, it's aversive to them because they've been trained it. Well, for a while, I'm not gonna eat food. We didn't see anything that cool. With our one animal, remember, one of the many reasons this wasn't published, I was, in, I was a second year student, so it was one of, and secondly, it was one damn pigeon. Today I just blog about it or something. Hey, it was a publication. Or I can just talk about it now and waste 10 minutes of your lives from an experiment I did in 1985. Damn it, it's my class. We then tried the external inhibitor. Because I was reading Pavlov, because I'm a keener. So I was reading my Pavlov book. And he talked about external inhibitors. And I thought, what if we can inhibit the inhibition? So I played, we, well, we played, we set it up. That, uh, after this was all beautifully happening and trained up, we started playing a really a, a noise, a tone. Now it's an external inhibitor. What should happen is it should inhibit inhibition. And we should have got more responding here and then less here at the end. And that's exactly actually what we got. And I should have ran with this and done something with it in graduate school, but I had other things to do. But it's kind of a neat little experiment. And it shows that we can ex an external thing isn't distracting the animal, could be. But why would it distract it and make the curve flip? Right? So it's kind of a cool experiment. So that's the idea of the external inhibitor. And again, people haven't really ran with that idea. Uh, Pavlov had it. In fact, I remember taking it to my TA, uh, like the TA that ran the lab section in class, and I said, the experiment, the guy who knows what he's doing, said, I've never heard of that. Right? Because I just read Pavlov. Because I'm an idiot. Wasn't making me, I'm not saying I'm very clever. I'm saying that there's something that people have ignored in Pavlov for some reason. I don't know why. Alright. Just kind of a little experiment. So inhibitors could be internal or external. So you're going to get a response of CR with a given <coughs> stimulus, a CS. Right? No. Just like habituation, you'll get generalization. Now, let's again, let's go back to the key packing behavior. We can do this with rats and bar pressing, but I, I, I like thinking pigeons because I use birds a lot more than, than rodents, so I, I just tend to think about you know, birds. So if we were training the animal, that when a yellow light, let's go with a green light, it's right in the middle. So when a green light comes on, it gets food. What's going to happen? For some reason, again, no one knows why, pigeons start pecking at lights to predict food. So we're going to call that the S plus. So it's the green light. And we get a nice steady state responding up here. And just like with the situation, you're going to get something looks like this, looks like that. So red, orange, yellow, green. 
Uh, it's not quite that wide <coughs> spectrum. You would actually go probably a lot, this would be compressed a lot, except that I don't know what the wavelengths of those colors are in nanometers, so I just use what you did. Yeah. That's, when, yeah. um, that's when the stimuli are presented separately, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're test blocks, yes. Would it be the same if you, say, gave like seven lights all at once to the bird? Would it still show that ratio? So you train it up with green, and then you give it a red, an orange, yellow, green, blue, and a violet light. What is it going to peck? It's going to peck at the green the most. Yes. Is it, are you saying it's going to peck a little bit at the other ones? Hmm. I don't know. I think it might. I don't know if that's been done. So I think, I mean, I don't think that's been done. With a choice like that, I can't think anything offhand. Who would know that? I don't know that. I don't know that. Sense. It probably makes sense that it would be just because it would give the most, right? It's the yeah, I mean, there's, I can think of two reasons, and I can think of sort of two, and there's sort of theoretical reasons I can think it happened too. Like, you would expect that they don't reply to reply, respond to the green because these other ones they've never been trained to, except that we know if we give them those colors in no choice, which is the way these are typically done, we get some responding, just less. So, do we get still some responding? I know that animals, when they're confronted with a novel stimulus, um, will investigate. I know they'll send, I know, for example, in a, in a different kind of situation with operant conditioning, if it's FR10 and FR5, they'll still peck both of them, even though the FR5 you get twice as much food as the FR10. In fact, they peck it at a two to one ratio. Um, that's the matching. Then it would make sense that they actually would peck it. I think they might, except that all of these things they haven't learned anything about them, and that's a sure thing. But the thing is, it's not a sure thing, really, because they don't have to respond at all to get the food. That's the interesting thing with the classical missions. So if we gave them a choice, I think I, think I know who would know this. And I'm going to ask them. Because I, I did my postdoc with Bill Roberts would know. Because it's, it's a very Bill Roberts-esque experiment. Bill would know. I will ask him. Because it's a, very, it's a neat idea. If not been done, then we should do it. Because it's neat. It's neat. There was a guy that I taught learning to in Newfoundland, Eric Lake, who's finishing up his PhD, and I swear half of his experiments are things he thought of in his class. He used to carry a little notebook down and write them down. Everybody thought he was an idiot except Eric called a PhD. I go, no, weirdo. I mean, nobody ever thought Eric was an idiot. It's like, you're a bit weird. You carry a notebook around and write down ideas for experiments? And he's like, yeah, when I get to graduate school, I have a whole notebook full of ideas. He does. And every time he writes anything, he uses the word interesting. It drives me crazy. This interesting result. You let the reader decide if something's interesting. There's a note to you when you're writing something. Don't say something's interesting. That's not your call. That's mine when I read it. Right? And in fact, I, wrote, I reviewed a paper there for, for a journal, and he actually said interesting. And I, I wrote it, I've been telling you this since 2000. Don't use the word interested. I decided to sign the review at that point. It's an anonymous I think you published a paper with Warrior, actually. Um, just with the habituation, the less similar than you see as the original, the less CR you get, and it's a, it's a normal curve. It's a normal curve. You can model it with the Gauss uh, equation. It's beautiful. 
beautiful. Oh, by the way, I wonder why this happened. You ever wonder, maybe you don't, but I do, and I'm going to ask you. Why would it be a normal distribution? I, is it a property? And I, 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 there is sort of an answer here, and we'll get to it in about a month. But just think about this. Is that a property of your nervous system, you being any animal, that you have these less and less responding in a normal distribution? Is that a problem? It could be a problem of your nervous system. Um, or is it because of the way you're trained up? And that's a good question, and we will answer that question later on, of course. But it's, it's an interesting question. Why does it be because we're trained up? There's a, there's a, you, don't, you don't have really enough background for me to explain this to you. Okay. But it could be... <coughs> yeah, I, I can't go into this. It'll take me 45 minutes. And I'll steal. I'll even be sweater alert, but I have to wrap this. Discrimination. I hate discrimination. It's bad. Um, <laughs> discrimination is sort of the opposite of generalization. Something was said that we can't be, we can't discriminate against people in our classes. And I said, do it all the time. <coughs> I give up marks. I don't give everybody the same grade. I'm just discriminating against something that's sensible and discriminating. Person walked away with a confused look, burrowing their brow, and they attempt to understand my logic. <laughs> One of my favorite expressions, furrowing your brow with a main attempt is great. That's not mine, I got it from the TV show Mystery Science Theater three times. Well, it's my stuff, I, you know, but I'm going to give credit where credit's still. So, discrimination is the opposite, sort of the opposite of generalization. So if we have two CSs, a CS plus and a CS minus, C.S. Lewis joke, but I have none. Um, so we got, let's go with two colors. We got, we're going to give a red, we got a red key and a green key for a pigeon. And we train it that red predicts food, green predicts no food. So red comes on, let's say 10 seconds, when two seconds left, food comes out. Green comes on, nothing happens. Nothing happens. The animal responds, obviously, to the CR and not to the CS. Or not to get to the S plus, blah, and not to the S minus. I had to do this, we do this course weeks. All these tests are always done in extinction, so you don't, you're not actually doing pairings at that point. You just say, here's the red, what do you do? Here's the green, what do you do? And this, that, that shouldn't surprise you either. Hell, you train the animal that way, and of course it's going to be that way. If the discrimination gets too hard, Avlov said you've got what we call it neuroses. Again, this may be bad translation from the Russian. But you can, a red and a green discrimination is trivial for a pigeon. It's really hard for rats because they don't see any color. It's a friend of mine who I won't mention his name. Oh, sure I will. John Crystal. John's kind of famous now. And when he was an undergrad, he was in our lab. And in fact, he was so good that he was like the first round draft pick. Like, schools all over the world were flying him in for interviews because they wanted him as their graduate student. John's really, really, he's a good guy. Do you hate people like that? He's a really good guy. And he's really smart. And he's got a great job. And you want to hate him because he's like that, but he's just a good guy. 
okay, maybe that's just me. But I remember the card we gave him actually said when he left, we were all graduates since he was undergrad, said, thank you for leaving, you make us all look bad. And he was instead, he just came in a first year, he was doing this experiment, he had a summer answer. And he was, he said, well, the rats will respond to the red and the green. I said, are they different brightnesses? He goes, I don't know. I said, well, I hope so, because rats can't see the colors. That's the one time I drunk John Crystal. We'll hear a lot of what I did. So that would be pretty hard for a rat, red and green, for a pigeon it's trimmed. But let's get a really close. And this is some of the stuff that Pavlov did. He used different tones, different uh, number of, he always used dogs. So using um, different tones, using the tuning forks. Okay? Because you know you can get a tuning fork, it's 440 hertz, but it's 442. It's totally doable. You probably played with that in uh, high school physics, right? You count the number of beats between the two things and I know some vague thing I kind of half remember. So green and blue are pretty similar. Then green and like teal. And then green and like aquamarine. And then like, I don't know the names of these colors. Oh God, I know seven freaking colors. Well, no, that's more peach than salmon. Um, if you start getting them being very similar, animals actually stop responding to either of them because they can't tell the difference anymore. And Pavlov called this uh, neurotic behavior. I think he read a little Freud and he's like, oh yeah, okay, I can apply my stuff too. My stuff has nothing to do with screaming mom. So a Russian and German psychologist walk into a bar. There's a joke in there somewhere. So he said this was neurotic behavior. And it kind of, when he described it, they were done this kind of stuff. Looks like it, apparently, because you actually get the animals confused, standing there, like lost in thought, like, oh, I don't know what to do. Man has to have therapy, that has a failure to love, can't commit, goes on Dr. Phil, and within 40 minutes, it's cured. Don't write all that down. Some of that was kidding. Let's talk a little bit about temporal relationships in conditioning. Um, simultaneous conditioning is what we tend to do. It's called simultaneous because we have overlap. Um, oh, no, sorry. So, simultaneous conditioning looks like this. There's your CS. And there's your US. Okay? They start at the same time. Short delay conditioning is what we tend to do. This works, by the way. You can see where this works. The CS predicts the US is coming. Right? Good enough. Now, short delay conditioning looks like this. They all start at the same time, CS then US. That's probably the most common kind of conditioning we use. They both work, though. Both these will work. Uh, what's a short delay versus a long delay? In that I don't think there is to find. <laughs> it's you know. Oops, my mouse must be outside the port active area there. A long delay condition, as you can guess, it's in the US is gonna start here. <coughs> I don't know what short and long are. I mean it's between in the same sort of like the CS 
Trace conditioning, which is the one that everybody thinks we do, hardly works at all. Trace conditioning, or it doesn't work very well. CS here, and then the CS ends, the US starts. That doesn't work very well. Why not? Why don't we get very much responding to the CS compared to, say, short delay or even long delay condition, or even simultaneous, compared to, to trace condition? Think about that. Tell me what. Somebody guess. Give me an idea. What do you got? Oh, sir. Uh, there's no association between the US and the CS? There's going to be less of an association between the CS and the US. But why? Yeah, why, but I, I see what you're saying. Why? That's good. Why? Yeah. Uh, because the simulators aren't being uh, exhibited at the same time. Yeah. So what you're getting here, and in fact, what you are getting is, say, this and this, so that's trace conditioning. The beginning of the CS means the US isn't coming for a while. You're actually getting inhibition at the beginning here, kind of like this experiment that I talked about that I ran with my friend Wanda. Right? So that's exactly what's happening, is you're actually not going to get, here the beginning, in simultaneous conditioning or any kind of short or long delay conditioning, any of these, you're going to get, there's always overlap, the CS then predicts that the US is coming pretty damn soon. When you get trace conditioning, the beginning of the CS means it's going to be a while yet. And, and if, if it's long enough, that's going to actually predict Nothing. Oh, no conditioning. Or, sorry, nothing's coming for a while. Here's one of my favorites, backwards contingency, or backwards conditioning. Let's put the U.S. over here. That doesn't work very well. I don't think anybody should be surprised here if we go uh, meat powder, then buzzer. Buzzer doesn't do anything. Buzzer predicts meat powder is finished. <coughs> right? So why should the animal? Now remember the, remember what the rules of association said the Brown Hat and all these other guys and going back to Aristotle and these dudes? They talked about contiguity. And it can't just be contiguity. It's not. It's also it's contingency. It's one thing predicts the other thing. Okay? Contiguity alone doesn't do the trick. This shouldn't surprise you. Yeah, it can work, by the way. You want some responding oftentimes to backwards conditioning. But usually what you get is inhibitory conditioning, right? Because it says, oh, that means the food's finished. It's a signal that the food's finished for a while. So we've got food and nothing. Food and nothing. You can actually do that. Right? That's all of them. Uh, light, nothing. Light, nothing. Light, nothing. Light, nothing. And let's say here we've got tone something. Tone something. Tone something. Tone something. Tone something. The top one used to be the way we ran control groups. I shouldn't say we, because this is the way it was done. I, I wouldn't have run a control group like that. Before Robert Scorlet came along, this is how we ran control groups. I think he did it. Just the CS, 
So we're just going to see if there's any learning to, to this light. So we got one group that gets light and food, light and food, light and food, light and food, light and food. Just get light, 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 light. What's the animal learn here? It's light and gets nothing. Yeah. Is that the same as learning nothing? No, you learn that the light is associated to nothing. Yes, that's right. It's not learning that the light predicts nothing. It's learning that the light predicts a lack of something. Those are two different things. Uh, that's a subtle point. But if we throw in what we call our scoreless control, you can see this. This group, half the time they get food and half the time they don't. You know what the animals learn here? Food is unpredictable. Light doesn't predict food. It does half the time. It doesn't half the time. That means light predicts nothing. It's like I don't. I didn't learn anything about lights. Not that lights predict nothing. I should have been clear about that. So that kind of control, what that's doing is it's actually explicitly telling the animal that light has no predictive value. Right? And that's different than when we have any sort of old-style old control group, where you're actually explicitly telling the animal that it predicts a lack of something. Here you're explicitly telling the animal, food's unpredictable. And believe me, you'll actually get different responding in the top group that you do in the middle group. Which is pretty cool. Alright. Questions about that? Okay, we're going to stop there. I know it's a little early, but I think I did a lot of stuff today. And I think your brains might be full. So I'm going to quit. Uh, we'll continue talking about this next week. Thanks, guys. Here you are at last Bring my cold, lonely soul, sweet from my weary past Always searching One missing piece was you And I beg you come away with me And together we will find a place to call our own I can't wait to see what I can do Laptop like you It's not your CD slot Or the Unix on which you are based You make my lap Underneath your aluminum case There's love And I forgive your strange one-button mouse I forgive the way your keyboard leaves
leaves marks on your screen I can overlook a fault or two For a laptop like We will always be together In love in spite of everything Hang on tight through wind and weather Heaven knows what time they bring In a year or two You will seem big and heavy and slow I will carry you To wherever it is laptops go to die Don't think it won't be hard on me How am I ever gonna find a way to justify Money I'll spend on something new for a laptop like you. For a laptop like you. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from garageband.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.